This is Live Well Talk on Palliative Care. I'm Dr. Dustin Arnold, Chief Medical Officer at Unity Point Health, St. Luke's Hospital. Joining me today is Dr. James Bell, Medical Director of St. Luke's Palliative Care, to discuss what is palliative care, the services they provide, and more. Dr. Bell, welcome to your first podcast. Thank you very much. I appreciate your inviting me. Or at least the first time you've been on this podcast. Have you done other podcasts? Uh, this, uh, I'm probably a podcast neophyte. We do things here and there. Um kind of in the multimedia area, but I can't remember if I've been on a podcast before. Okay. One of my daughters was asked one time, do you listen to your dad's uh, podcast? She said, well, half of them. And they're like, wow, half of them? She goes, well, half of one of them. <laughs> you know, so no respect at home. But, you know, I wanted to talk about palliative care. I think that it's a really, ex- not exploded, but expanded in the last 10 years. Um, I think, in my opinion, I think it is even become more important with the, and it kind of grew at the same time as hospitalist programs, because you're taking that primary care physician that's known the patient for a long time out of the care plan. But could you give me your, what, how you would define palliative care? Sure. There's a couple of interesting things that you said there and kind of um, historically some, uh, sort of a pathway to where we are now. Um, Palliative care, uh, if I were to kind of describe it simply to people, is um, you think of cardiology as heart care, you think of pulmonology as lung care, um, and you think of palliative care as quality of life care. So the reason that palliative care really exists is because, as you very well pointed out, things are different now than they were a generation ago. Things that uh, bring the end of life potentially into view for people are more complicated, um, and they're different than they were when you and I trained in medical school. People then died fairly suddenly of heart attacks or um, diseases that we really couldn't fix or bad strokes uh, or cancer that just um, ended a life. And now we've really managed a lot of those things very well. But what we have is a situation where a huge number of patients, a big segment of our population is living with a lot of chronic and potentially serious medical illnesses. So we take care of people who have cancer and they're actively fighting that and have heart disease. And there's a lot of things that they can do about that. And they maybe have bad lungs and they're under very aggressive treatment for that. Um, A lot of patients who are struggling with cognitive issues like dementia and maybe even on top of all of those other things. And so what that brings into view is a complicated situation where decisions that you're making um, about healthcare um, are very challenging and we don't haven't historically tended to do a very good job of thinking about those things in a quality of life filter. So that's what we do in palliative care. Our focus, like a cardiologist has a heart catheterization, our procedure is a family meeting. And so we sit and talk with patients and their families, typically in the hospital when we meet them for an hour, about the choices that are in front of them and thinking about things in a quality of life way, not that there's a right or a wrong answer, but about what those choices might look like. So a lot of people are afraid that when we come in, we're the big gloomy black cloud and that we're here to make them give up or that we're here to be um, negative or or shorten their time. It's not about that at all. And many of our patients in palliative care live years and years and years and fight disease and do very well and they're comfortable and they're um, living a good um, way in the last part of their lives. 
Um, so it's really more thinking about how to live with the possibility that things could bring the end of life into view. So I hope that makes sense. No, and, that that you're and you're you're I hadn't ever looked at it that way, but that's a great perspective to take because when I started medical school, fifty percent of heart disease presented as sudden death, and if you had LV dysfunction or congestive heart failure, you're you're going to be dead within ten years. And that I mean that has changed dramatically for the better. But now you have patients with chronic illnesses, chronic conditions that are kind of can be kind of indolent uh, in their uh, decline, but a decline nonetheless. I know that was a great description. Now, you, you talked about quality of life, and it's easy for one to understand that my quality might be different than somebody else's. How do you navigate that? Yep. Great question. So again, I think that's where um, some of the sort of specialization and training and palliative care comes into play because it's really, and this isn't rocket science, but we really don't all do a good job of listening well and understanding well. And so sometimes it's the right way to ask a question. Sometimes it's literally, which is really hard for a doctor to just be quiet um, and understand uh, what people are thinking. So um, again, when we think about things in a quality of life sort of a way, we all come with our own sort of ideas and our own preconceived notions about what's right and what is good quality and what is um, maybe uh, our best sort of idea. And sometimes we do need to give that. And again, that's something that we tend to kind of shrink back from at times. And uh, especially, again, in this sort of highly um, intensive intervention oriented medical system where we just do things to people because we can. Sometimes it's easier to do something than it is to sit down and talk for a while about whether that's the right thing to do. So uh, getting to that place where you can really connect with people in that quality of life conversation and let them be really the driver um, can sometimes be very, very challenging. Sometimes it's not, but sometimes it can be. Yeah, I, I th you know, when people ask me, well, what, what's wrong with the healthcare system in the United States? I, I always say, well, the problem is we do really great things and we're all showing up to work every day thinking if we do more of what we do, things will be better. And that's not necessarily the case. Uh, we, they do really great things with prostate cancer. That doesn't mean we do it to everyone. And uh, it, because, you know, a, a directive we all carry close to our heart is patient autonomy. Everybody's different. And that's that's what makes the job fun, though, too. I mean, if everybody was the same, it really wouldn't be that much fun. Sometimes they've called, they haven't heard this long time, and uh, but hospice light, confuse that with palliative care. Tell me the difference between hospice and palliative care. So one of the things you said uh, early on, uh, again, that I'll key off of is um, source. So how did, where did palliative care come from and how did, um, how did we get where we are? Hospice came into being in America in around 1981 or 1982. That was when they created the hospice Medicare benefit. And here in the United States, that really um, is a box that um, is bound by two rules. One rule is we think that with the natural course of an illness that somebody's in the last six months of their life. And the second rule is that their goal is no longer to try to do things purely to live longer, but it is to be comfortable. So if a patient fulfills those two criteria, then they can have hospice care. That's an entitlement. 
Um, it's something that Medicare pays for all of the people and the medicine and the equipment um, for good end of life care. What we unfortunately did there is um, not only put people inside that box, but keep a lot of people outside that box. Um, because when you're thinking about just doing that, it's very difficult to have that conversation that we were talking about, about quality of life, when there are things that you conceivably could do, but in order to have hospice, you have to let go of. So in around 2000 or 2001, um, some people from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation actually came up with the concept of getting outside of that box and saying, hey, how about if we took care of people um, in a different sort of a way with concepts and philosophy that was maybe a little bit more consistent with comfort focused care or care that is dealing with that quality of life um, centerpiece, um, but not make them give up chemotherapy, not make them decide that they couldn't do something to make their heart beat longer, um, and at the same time, make sure that they're comfortable. So that's where palliative care came from. And at St. Luke's, we started our program. I went to a meeting in 2001 about that, and then we started our program in 2005, and it's grown steadily ever since then. You said one more thing that I kind of wanted before it's out of my head to pass along, and that is, so I'm a family doctor by training, and I spent 21 years in full-time family practice in Marion. And sometimes I tell people in the hospital when I meet them for palliative care that I'm kind of the stealth family doctor in the hospital because it really is thinking about things that way. And 80% um, of palliative care, frankly, can and probably should be done by a, a good family doctor who has that skill set. So it's like a lot of other things in medicine. Your family doctor can do about 80% of what needs to be done. Um, and as I said before, this isn't rocket science, but it is sometimes very challenging to put together that idea of good generalist primary family doctor care in this incredibly complicated hospital setting. Well, I, I think maybe we can start calling you ninja doctor. You can call me whatever you want. I answer to, I've been called a lot worse than that already today. Oh, okay. Well, that's, uh, and it's only uh, two o'clock in the afternoon. So, that's right. you know, that's, that's interesting how you, how you describe it because uh, as uh, you know, you said 2005 and the hospitalist program started in the spring of 2006. And then you started to have primary care physicians, family practice specifically, but also internal medicine stop coming to the hospital over time. And so you lose that continuity. And I, I've always found that the palliative care service one of the best things that happens because I work as a hospital is the continuity. You you see your patients when they come back. And so there's a common, you know, uh, it's nice to whether Josie or someone says, no, they're not usually this confused. And it just it really does add to the treatment plan. And it's so easy to get lost in the, the trees in the forest these days. There's so much going on. Uh, and uh, it, it really is is uh, is an additive. Now. It's it's a board certification, correct? And there are fellowship opportunities. And I know that you, you, you're prior to that era, but tell us about that. Yeah, so um, palliative care and hospice together combined are actually the newest specialty um, under the ABMS, the American Board of Medical Specialties, that there is. You have to be uh, board certified with a parent board, and I think there are 11 or 12. So there's more parent boards 
for palliative medicine uh, than there are any other subspecialty, but you can be a general surgeon or a pediatrician or even a you know emergency room doctor, anesthesiologist. The bulk of palliative care certified board certified uh, doctors are uh, family medicine or general internal medicine or internal medicine subspecialties. So they uh, actually, um, again, sort of birthing out of hospice when palliative medicine came into its own, they developed their own uh, subspecialty certification examination in the late 1990s and up until the early 2000s. And I uh, got that board certification, but then I think it was in 2004 or so, the ABMS took palliative medicine and said, now you're going to be a bona fide subspecialty. And then there was a grandfathering period where um, you could be board certified uh, in palliative medicine uh, without doing uh, a fellowship if you had certain uh, experience and then pass the exam. And now you have to do a fellowship to actually have board certification for palliative medicine. It's a one-year fellowship. And we were actually part of the fellowship uh, that was out of the University of Iowa Correct. for a number of years because they didn't have a board certified hospice or a uh, Medicare certified hospice in Iowa City, but now they do. And interestingly, again, for historical purposes only, Mason City, Iowa had the very first community-based palliative care fellowship in the country. And they oh, did really? a good job up there. That's always been a very strong family practice residency. Uh, really, they're kind of, they're in that situation where they're just far enough away from everything. They have a pretty solid medical community. I've always thought. I've yeah. had friends yeah. in a practice. Yeah. There. You mentioned grandfathering. Now, how many grandkids do you have now? Ten, thank you for asking. Uh, was, I thought it was double digits. Four daughters, right? I have four daughters. Two, two daughters was plenty for me. How how can a patient, if I'm admitted to the hospital, I'm a patient, and can I request palliative care? We we get more uh, patient requests for palliative care um, with increasing awareness of it and people who have experienced it. Um, we still, just on the basis of etiquette, require a physician referral or a consultation. So um, that's both inpatient and outpatient. I don't think we really talked about that very much yet. So that uh, connectivity and continuity that you mentioned. We, when it's appropriate, follow patients outside the hospital too. Um, our outpatient census right now is around 190. Uh, Brooke Sternberg, our nurse practitioner, and Renee Grummer-Miller, our social worker, are the, are the foundation of our outpatient program. About half of those 190 people, patients are people with stage four cancer. So they pretty much live a lot of their day at the PCI oncology office. Um, but to get back to answer your question, um, we do require a consult from a physician. So if a patient wants palliative care, uh, they just need to ask one of their their doctor, preferably their primary care doctor, or or if it's in the hospital, uh, somebody. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I, I think I think the medical staff has evolved to being receptive of it. it wasn't always that way, and, and with a lot of things, when they change is not always welcome, but uh, it's uh, you can resist change and become uh, less relevant, or you can change with uh, the times, so to speak. Well, one last question we always ask our guest: uh, Why did you choose palliative care? What, what, how? Why did you make that transition from a very successful practice in Marion with Dr. Hodge to palliative care? 
So I'm asked that question periodically, and what I usually say is that it found me, I didn't find it. My very first clinical experience in medical school, um, and I won't name the year, but it was 1980, um, I went to Haiti to spend a month in a home for the dying with no intention of necessarily um, that becoming a driver for me uh, of um, the kind of care that I would provide. Um, but those life experiences, both clinically and personally, um, really, again, sort of led me to um, honestly a love of taking good care of people in the last part of their life. And again, if you look at American medicine, it's not something that we've done very well. Yeah. Um, it, it's, not, um, it's not gloomy, um, big black cloud, l lightning strikes hanging crepe um, medical care, it's actually um, floating the boat higher and kind of raising the bar and the standard of how to take good care of people in the last part of their life. So I did that uh, through medical school and residency and then um, became the hospice medical director for St. Luke's from 1989 until 2018. So I did that for almost 30 years. And then um, again, as I sort of described for you, palliative care was sort of born out of that. Right. Um, and I moved along and I, I loved every minute of my family medicine practice. I would do every single day of it again. Um, and in 2007, when, as you remember, I was um, also in the medical staff uh, leadership track here, um, it became really clear to me that there were not enough hours in the day for me to keep doing full-time family medicine. And um, the burgeoning sort of palliative uh, care practice and hospice at that point in time um, right. was happening. So I, I, I um, actually approached St. Luke's with kind of a, um, a, a proposal and a plan. Uh, and um, the hospital was extremely gracious kind of in helping um, and in allowing us to create that. So we, we really did sort of create something that didn't wasn't here before. And I um, am humbled and um, at the same time, you know, proud that we were able to do that. And it's been the um, hard work of a lot of people. Um, but that's that's sort of how my universe got to where it is right now. Yeah, I think uh, credit to Marianne Osborne for having the vision, not only with, with palliative care, but also with hospitalist program to see uh, on the horizon and 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 have confidence in both you and me so that we could actually fulfill that vision, which uh, yeah. you're up is it's yeah, it is to you with the hospitalist uh, team. And I mean, so what a legacy and what a um, truly necessary uh, thing it is. I mean, now uh, people, you know, nobody could live without hospitalist medicine. And I kind of hear the same thing about palliative care. Absolutely. So. I think they've, they have been uh, two two parallel processes. Well, Dr. Bell, thanks you so much. This is great information. Always fun to talk to a colleague. Uh, once again, this is Dr. James Bell, Medical Director of St. Luke's Palliative Care. For more information, visit unionpoint.org backslash palliative care. Thank you for listening to Live Well Talk On. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your family, friends, neighbors, strangers about our podcast. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, be well.